0: Mark chapter 13, we'll get to verse 14, but let's kind of develop a running start. Jesus, the disciples, it's the final week of Jesus' life. Obviously, things will reach a very dark moment when he's arrested, tried, crucified. The week will reach a crescendo when after three days in the grave, Jesus rises from the dead. But before those things take place, Jesus is going back and forth from Bethany, which was a suburb of Jerusalem, to the city itself. It's Tuesday. The disciples, Jesus, they're making their way out of the city. It's dusk. It's a beautiful time. And as they're making their way out the east side of the city, probably the eastern gate, down through the Kidron Valley, back up the Mount of Olives, the disciples are looking at the temple And they begin a conversation, a dialogue. A conversation, a dialogue that we will find known historically as the Olivet Discourse. It's a sermon. Now the first third of the sermon, the third that we've already addressed, that we've already looked at, Jesus discusses, he lays out chronologically the first half of what we know as the Great Tribulation. First, Jesus warns, of a great deceiver. Though the spirit of antichrist has always been existing in our world, vying for the hearts of man, not antichrist in the sense that it's against Christ, but a replacement Christ. Satan has always wanted the worship of man as opposed to man worshiping God. And there are all kinds of things that vie for our attention. The spirit of antichrist according to Paul has always been at work throughout the world. But in the end, Jesus tells us that there will be an ultimate manifestation of this deceit in a man, a person known as the Antichrist. Now he goes by other names. Uh, The man of sin, the son of perdition. The book of Revelation simply refers to him as the beast. Now following this great deceiver, Jesus warns that a great war will break out on the earth. A great war where nation will rise against nation. And following this war, there'll be three things, three fallouts. Obviously, from a great war, the economy of the world will be in shambles. Jesus references great inflation. John mentions inflation as a byproduct of this global war. Secondly, there would be famine, followed by pestilence. The first three and a half years of tribulation will carry with it obviously devastating physical effects. In Revelation chapter six, John summarizes what takes place in the first one and a half, the first three and a half years by saying one quarter of the world's population will die, Revelation six, verse eight. But you should understand, though the effects, the physical effects will be horrifying. Jesus also mentions that those things would almost pale in comparison to a great spiritual battle. That takes place. There are physical effects of tribulation, but in this period of history, there will be a great revival. Multiple passages indicate that though the church has been removed from the earth, there will be a great moving of God's spirit. People will come into saving faith. However, Jesus is equally clear in the Olivet Discourse that this great spiritual revival that takes place will be met head on by a great persecution unlike anything the world has ever seen. In the end, when it's all said and done, religious ambivalence will no longer be permissible. Today's decision, the decision many of you face, will I forsake the world and live my life for Jesus, will radically change in the end into will I forsake the world and lay down my life for Jesus. There will be no fence, no middle ground. You will either be for him Or against him. Now, the core question that kind of sets the stage for this entire discourse, the disciples' question, was very simple. According to Matthew, their question was what will be the sign or singular event of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples want to know the core essence of their question was what one singular event could they look for that would be the indication that the end was near and he was coming soon, that the kingdom was on the horizon. And at this point, in the first third of Jesus's Olivet Discourse, everything he's described, everything we've looked at in the last two weeks, Jesus defined as not the main event, as not the sign, as not the singular occasion, but instead Jesus defines it as the beginning of sorrows as just the warm-up act. Now, Jesus will transition into answering their question by providing the one thing, the one event that they could look for that would indicate that the end is near and he was soon returning. Verse 14, so, it's a transitional word. When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it not. Let the reader understand. And I think that that's probably a good point for us to pause to define what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying the singular event that will mark the beginning of the end of the age will be the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, our immediate question is that's kind of a funky phrase, right? The abomination of desolation. And if you've been around church at all, you've heard this phrase before. If you've read common uh, Bible fiction, such as the Left Behind series or any Joel uh, uh, Rosenberg books, you're familiar with this term, this event, the abomination of desolation. But our immediate question should be, let's shelve any ideas we might have Let's kind of set aside whatever preconceived notions we might've gathered from common Bible literature. And let's instead, we'll look at the indicator that Jesus provides us that defines what the event is. The first key to understanding the abomination of desolation is that Jesus, in this half of a verse, what does he do? He directly connects the event, the abomination of desolation, with the description provided by whom? the prophet Daniel. So Jesus says, the abomination of desolation, look for this event spoken of by Daniel. And so we have to ask, what does Daniel have to say about this event? Because Jesus doesn't give us much description, does he? As a matter of fact, speaking to the disciples, he just kind of assumes that the disciples already understand what he's referring to. When he says, you know that that event we learned about in Sunday school? in the local synagogue, you know, the Sunday school teacher with the felt board and walked us through the whole lesson there when we were kids. That event spoken of by Daniel, he was a hero to the Jews. That event, let the reader understand, I don't have to elaborate. Now for us, some of us are not familiar with Daniel. And so it's important for our understanding to actually pause here in the Olivet Discourse and flip to Daniel. Let's start with chapter nine. We're gonna look at a few passages. We're going to work our way through. If you're using the app, they're already loaded in, so you don't have to flip anywhere. You just can follow right along. In Daniel chapter 9, just to give you some context, we have the first mention of, well, a version of this phrase in an incredible prophecy that's known as Daniel's 70th week or the 70 weeks prophecy. God says that there's 490 years left for Israel. And he lays out the whole time frame when these 490 years will start, at what juncture in this period of God dealing with, it, with Israel, would with the Messiah appear? It's an awesome prophecy we don't have time to get to in great details. Other than the fact that in chapter 9, verse 27, Daniel tells us, he says, Then he, in the middle of great tribulation, this last seven years, Daniel's 70th week, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years. But in the middle of the week, or at the three and a half year mark, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, Daniel 9, this verse provides two important bits of information concerning our understanding of this event that Jesus tells us to look for, right? First, Daniel 9 kind of provides for us a timeline for when the event will occur. His prophecy states that in the final seven years of history, the Great Tribulation, it will begin, how does he say, when he shall confirm a covenant with many for seven years or one week. Now he, we got to define he. You'll note that it's little case. If you look at the prophecy in great detail, you'll see the Messiah is already mentioned. So he, little case, is not Daniel referencing the Messiah. This is somebody different. In context, he is this great deceiver. Now, we don't have time to establish that principle. If you'd like more uh, information on how we reach that conclusion, we can talk after the service. But he, in Daniel's prophecy, is this great deceiver or the antichrist who Jesus has already mentioned and which Daniel is establishing context for, you'll find in the previous verse. Now, here's the question. What will he do that begins this prophetic timetable? Or what starts the clock? What starts the seven years? The Antichrist will sign a peace accord with many, more than likely with Israel, for seven years. I mean, imagine for a moment, trying to figure out how someone could rise to world power, how someone could rise and become a political leader that the world's attention and allegiance is given to. We're told right from the beginning that he achieved something that hasn't been achievable in over 2,000 years. He achieves peace in the Middle East. Now, how he achieves peace in the Middle East is still a question mark. There are several theories that we'll get to when we begin to discuss things uh, and more details in our our B-sides. But note, and this is what's important, the tribulational period, according to Daniel 9, does not start with the rapture of the church. Many people think that the tribulation starts with the rapture. But the rapture, as we mentioned in our first study concerning the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus calls the church to meet him in the air, when he removes the church before tribulation, is imminent, which means it's not predicated upon any other events. It's not that the rapture happens, tribulation takes place. Hypothetically, the rapture could happen, it'd be another 40 years before tribulation takes place. Now, I don't think that that's the case. I think that it's probably will be a bang, bang, bang kind of a situation. But what happens is that tribulation begins at the signing of a false peace. And then Daniel, what else does he do? He tells us when it starts, the signing of a peace accord. And then he says, you can mark three and a half years at the middle, at the halfway point, what happens? He says in the middle, he, the Antichrist, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Now, it would appear that halfway into this peace agreement, the Antichrist will commit such an abominable deed that it will singularly set the course for the rest of history. Now, what abominable deed is it? Well, Daniel provides us the first clue in this verse. He says, he shall bring an end to sacrifice an offering. Now, Daniel 9, that's vague. I mean, that gives us a clue, but it doesn't provide us further details. So we should flip to chapter 11, verse 31. Because though his prophecy in Daniel 9 is vague, to further explain the abomination that the Antichrist would commit, he uses the phrase again, even more specifically, Now, before we get to chapter 11, verse 31, I have to give you a little context, or this would get horribly confusing. Historically, Daniel is describing the atrocious acts committed by Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, you can debate on how his name is said. We've had conversations all week trying to figure out how to say Antiochus, Antiochus. You figure it out and let me know. But Daniel's describing events that will take place prophetically by this man. Now, in these last few chapters of the book of Daniel, he predicts some amazing events. And this might whet your appetite to study Daniel more depth, but Daniel predicts the fall of the Babylonian empire to the Persians before it happens. Then he goes to the point where he predicts the fall of the Persians to the Greeks, under the conquest specifically of Alexander the Great. It's incredible prophecy. Beyond that, he predicts the fall of the Greeks after Alexander's empire is divided into two sections to the Romans. And chapter 11, Daniel tells us that there would be one Greek leader in particular that would set the framework for the fall of the Grecian empire that would then transition into the Roman empire. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes would rule from 175 to 164 B.C. in 172 B.C., Antiochus attempted to Hellenize the Jewish people who were under his rule. He controlled Judea. And he replaced the legitimate high priest, a man by the name of Jason, with an imposter. From there, he moved south. In 169 B.C., Antiochus was campaigning in Egypt. He got his butt kicked. While this was happening, Jason led a revolt. He took back the city. He killed this imposter who was the high priest, and he went so far as to try to reverse all effects of Hellenization, Jason. Now, suffering his defeat in Egypt, Antiochus isn't happy. He gets word what's happened in Judea, and so he goes back to Jerusalem with fury though we don't consider the books of Maccabees scripture, such as the Catholics. At the same time, they do record interesting tidbits of history that are relevant. 2 Maccabees chapter 5, verses 11-14 through 14, actually gives us some detail into what takes place when Antiochus returns to Jerusalem. We're told, raging like an animal, a wild animal. He set out from Egypt, and he took Jerusalem by storm. And he ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those who he met and to slay anyone who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number were sold into slavery. Antiochus returns to Jerusalem. He crushes this rebellion. He plunders the city, and he wages an assault on anyone who would reject Hellenization and embrace the God of Israel. Now, the result would be what we know as the Maccabean Revolution. Now, setting up chapter 11, verse 31, because this is important, we're told that during the conquests of this man, Antiochus, he would defile the sanctuary fortress. So he puts it into sacrifice and offering, but now we're told that he defiles the sanctuary forces. And they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation, which is our second clue. This word abomination appears 29 times in the Old Testament. And every place we find it mentioned, it's always a reference to an idol being set up in worship and worshiped in the temple. One historian commented, Antiochus put to death anyone who worshiped God or studied the Torah. He brutally punished circumcision, Sabbath keeping, eating kosher. He hung, and this is grotesque, he hung freshly circumcised baby boys around their own mother's necks till they were dead. And the little bodies were, were forced to be left there rotting, As a warning to others. In some cases, soldiers punished mothers of circumcised boys by pushing them off the walls of the city to their deaths below. Antiochus killed anyone who would not eat pork. It was not just that he took the city, it was that he was trying to crush the religious heritage of the Jewish people which is more indication of what this abomination of desolation would look like. William Barclay, he says, Antiochus desecrated the temple by offering wine's flesh on the great altar in the temple and by setting up public brothels in the courts before the very holy place, the Holy of Holies, he set up a great statue of the Olympian Zeus and ordered the Jews to worship it or face death. Antiochus, had what many would refer to as a God complex. Epiphanes literally means God manifest. That's what his name means. But his contemporaries, it's known historically that they called him Epimenes, which means the mad one because of his evil proclivities. So this man, he was grotesque. He waged a war against God and the people of God. Now, our question, what's relevant, is how can you connect Daniel's prophecies about Antiochus with the Antichrist? Okay, he's referencing an event, an abomination of desolation. Daniel's talking about the abomination of desolation. Who committed the abomination of desolation? Antiochus. But Jesus then says what? Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, this abomination of Uh, of desolation, this abominable event. Now, it would be easy, admittedly, I think even rationally, and would be okay in some regards to see how this event would have found its fulfillment in Antiochus and his deeds. However, here's the problem. In referencing Daniel, does Jesus use the past tense? No, he doesn't. He refers to this event in a future tense, referencing back To Daniel, Jesus, it would appear, viewed Daniel's prophecy about this abomination of desolation, not finding its fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes, but rather being fulfilled when you see, future tense. Now, this creates major problems for those who see the Olivet Discourse finding its fulfillment in 70 AD. If Daniel's prophecies concerning the abomination find their fulfillment in Antiochus' actions in the second century BC, then you have to ask, what is Jesus talking about? What is he referencing? David Guzik says it this way. He says, as bad as Antiochus' deeds were, it did not fulfill the abomination of desolation because Jesus said these words long after Antiochus had come and gone. Though Daniel is writing prophetically about Antiochus, Jesus sees the fulfillment yet still future, that his deeds, Antiochus' deeds, and this is why it's important to look at the man, that they served as a prophetic precursor to what would be done by the Antichrist. So Daniel says, when you look for this event, the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, of which you can get some clues of what it would look like through the deeds of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a type of Antichrist, giving you insight, giving you a picture. So what is the abomination of desolation? The abomination was not just the fact that the Antichrist in the future will establish an idol and the temple. This had been done before. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, verse 15, that he sets the idol and the holy of holies. Matthew says that it's standing where it not. And I think Paul gives us another clue that gives us a little more insight. Got to connect the dots. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses three and four, and I'll read it for you. Paul says that the day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The man of sin, another title for the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and check it out, and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that, what does he do? He sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Antiochus set up an idol to Zeus, but he didn't have the audacity to sit in the Holy of Holies, to sit himself up as God. But the Antichrist, we're told in these passages, will. According to scripture, at the three and a half year mark, the Antichrist, foreshadowed by Antiochus, he will enter the temple. He will put an end to sacrifice the worship of God. He will set himself up as God and he will demand the complete and total worship and allegiance of the people of the world or they will face immediate death. We're told in Revelation 13, and he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheming his name, his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The abomination of desolation. This singular act Jesus tells them to look for is an act committed by the Antichrist that desecrates the temple, but launches a spiritual assault and war on any who would claim allegiance to God. And note, it's the abomination of what? Of desolation. Or or literally, it's the abomination which causes desolation. You see, his act, It's so blasphemous, it's so egregious that it and it alone singularly triggers the devastating judgment of God to the point that Jesus returns. Now, before we get back to the Olivet Discourse, Daniel 12, verse 11. So maybe one more page to your right. It gives us another clue, just one more additional insight that we should consider. Verse 11, Daniel says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation, there's that phrase again, is set up. There shall be 1,290 days until the end. Paul says three and a half years. Daniel says three and a half years. Jesus says three and a half years until the end. They're clear. Scripture is clear prophetically that the abomination of desolation is the sign that the end is near that exactly three and a half years from that moment, Jesus will return to earth in glory. And this has been, as we've mentioned before, this was the view of the first century church. As a matter of fact, writing in the second century AD, Irenaeus, he wrote that when the Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months, he will sit in the temple at Jerusalem, which by the way, the temple at Jerusalem didn't exist. This is the second century AD. The temple has been destroyed in the 70 AD, which means that Irenaeus sees a future building of the temple. And he says that when the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in righteousness of the kingdom. So this has been the view, this literal fulfillment, this timeline. Of the church from the beginning. Now, one observation before we continue. I find it to be a fun thought. It would appear that you cannot have the abomination of desolation, that it would be very difficult for the Antichrist to desecrate a temple that didn't exist, which means that you can't have the abomination without the temple. But if you uh, Google Earth, Jerusalem, you will find that there is no temple. On the Temple Mount, the book of Ezekiel, we're told the prophet is commissioned to go out and to measure a third temple. And we know that his measurements don't correlate to the Herodian Temple because the measurements don't fit. Which leads most Bible scholars to see Ezekiel's measurements as the measurements still of a future unfulfilled building of a third temple. Now, this is a concept that preterists love to overlook. But prophetically, sometime between today and the abomination of desolation, a third temple will be constructed in Jerusalem. And do you know that absolutely everything to build that temple is prepared? I visited, it's called the Temple Institute. It's located in Jerusalem. They have all of the building materials ready for the construction, They have all of the equipment rented. They have everything together. They have the garments for the priests. They've actually genetically re-engineered a red heifer so that they can have the ashes of the red heifer to dedicate the next temple. It's unbelievable. They have golden menorahs, and all the instruments have all been donated and reconstructed and built. They're actually instituting a new Sanhedrin that will govern this future temple. Now, though everything's in order, what's holding them back? Well, as you know, the Temple Mount is not controlled by the Jews. Instead, it's controlled by the Muslims. Two holy sites exist on the Temple Mount. Ironically, they built the Dome of the Rock where they thought the Temple Mount was so that the Jews could never come back. Interestingly, that more recent archaeological discoveries have concluded that they missed, (laughs) that actually the temple was built just to the right Of the Dome of the Rock, which means that there's this nice big open piece of real estate with perfect dimensions for the reconstructed temple. Ezekiel measuring the third temple, it's interesting that he went to measure the outer courts, and the angel told him not to worry about it. He said that the outer courts have been given to the Gentiles, leading some to think that a temple could exist next to the Dome of the Rock, the Dome of the Rock existing, and the outer court of the Gentiles but there's another problem that exists with the rebuilding of a temple. The Jews don't care. (laughs) I mean, that really is the truth. A recent poll said that only 40% of Jews are in favor of rebuilding a temple. They don't care. They're secular. Following the Holocaust, they, for the most part, rejected God all in all. It's only a small portion of Orthodox Jews that want to see the temple rebuilt, which means, okay, something between today and the abomination will have to occur for the temple to be built, to create the will for the temple. Now, we'll get to this in our B-sides, but Ezekiel 38 and 39 present an interesting, miraculous intervention by God when Russia attacks Israel, I still think a future event. Could be one theory is that they discover the temple treasure under the temple mount, which then would give claim to the Jews' Authority of the temple predating anything to do with Islam. Ironically, they just discovered a piece of pottery in the south section of the old, uh, the old city, David's city, that they thought for years, it dates back, this piece of pottery dates back to 10,000 uh, 10, BC, the 10th century BC, during the reign of King David. And they thought the writing on this piece of pottery that they date to this time period, that it was written in... Some Canaanite, dead Canaanite dialect. Recent discoveries. Fox News had a whole big thing two weeks ago. They discovered that it's actually a very early version of Hebrew. Which means that in the 10th century, their history wasn't being passed down orally what was being written down, that they were actually writing, they had a written form of Hebrew, not just saying that our Bible's trustworthy, that there were eyewitness accounts, not oral tradition, but giving further claim, more and more evidence, that the Jews were there long before the Palestinians. Some think that the temple becomes part of a deal with the Antichrist, that it takes them three and a half years, and at the dedication, the Antichrist commits such an abominable deed. Anyway, Jesus says what the event is, this linchpin, the sign. He answers their question very specifically, the abomination of desolation. But then he continues by saying that there's two things that will occur following the event. We're told, verse 14, the second half, so when you see these things, when you see this happen, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him who is on the housetop not go into his house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. I guess you have to jump off the roof at that point. I'm not sure. But let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and woe to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight might not be in winter. Now, following the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist enters the temple, sets himself up as God, there will be a mass exodus from Judea. Jesus exhorts it, he encourages it, and he predicts it. Following this atrocious act of the Antichrist, the Jews are are encouraged, those in Jerusalem, the surrounding region, are immediately encouraged to flee for refuge. You should note that one of the cities of refuge described in several places in scripture uh, could very well be the rock city of Petra. Dates back to the Edomite Empire. It's an interesting location. It has a very small access point. You've all seen it. Raiders of the Lost Art, Indiana Jones. They go riding through him and Sean Connery, and you see that rock city. The rock city of Petra, located in Jordan, could very well be one of these places that the Jews leaving find refuge in. Now you should remember. That the Jewish people, they accept the Antichrist as their Messiah. They're deceived. Jesus warns of deceit because deceit will happen. They'll be deceived. They will accept the Messiah as being this man. They will rally around him. They will follow him. They will be excited. But when they see this man commit such a deed, blasphemous deed, the blinders are removed. And something interesting happens according to scripture. Not only do they view the Antichrist in that moment as a false Messiah, as an enemy, but they see Jesus for the first time as he has always been. They reject the Antichrist and there is a moving, a revival amongst the Jewish people accepting Jesus as the true Messiah. And because of the reversal of fortunes, the Antichrist will launch a Holocaust-style persecution and purging of the Jewish people. It's described in Revelation chapter 12, which adds further weight to why Jesus would say, when you see this happen, get out of Dodge. During this time, Daniel chapter 12 tells us that the people fleeing will be protected, that they will be shielded by Michael the archangel. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, says that ultimately the armies of the Antichrist will come to destroy the Jewish people. Things will be so ominous that at that point Jesus will return, riding a white horse, wielding a sword, and he'll destroy the armies of the Antichrist. Now, the exhortation that Jesus provides here, we should mention that it has led some to believe that everything that Jesus spoke here about fleeing Jerusalem, freeing Judea was fulfilled when Rome came to destroy Jerusalem. You will hear preterists say this. And it's true that many Christians in Jerusalem, according to what Jesus said in this passage, when they saw the armies of Rome making their way, that they fled That the church, in so many ways, because they took the words of Jesus literally, they got out of town, they got out of Dodge, and they found refuge in the mountain regions. But the problem is twofold. First, Luke chapter 21, another passage of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus encouraged the disciples to pray that they would be counted worthy to escape even the period of tribulation, not just the event. And secondly, well, the exodus, the persecution that follows... It comes after what? The abomination of desolation, which you cannot pinpoint at all into any event historically in Titus' sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, the second thing that will happen, so there's this mass exodus. There will also, following that, be an even greater period of tribulation than what we found in the first three and a half years. Verse 19, for in those days, after the abomination... After the exodus and those days, there will be tribulation. Such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor will there ever be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, it's my conviction that at least the first five sealed judgments take place during the first, well, the first third of the Olivet Discourse, and my estimation, the first half of the tribulational period. And then following the abomination of desolation, the last three and a half years, you have the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, which undoubtedly, in so many ways, overlap. That In unlocking the last two seal judgments, you have these other ways of judgment taking place in the last three and a half years. Let me just kind of give you a rundown of what kind of tribulation we're talking about. One third of all the vegetation is burned up. One third of the seas become blood, killing one third of the sea life, destroying one third of the ships. One third of all fresh water becomes blood, limiting the drinking water. One third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. A great asteroid hits the planet. Locusts from the bottomless pit are loose to torment humanity. It's like a zombie apocalypse. Demons are loose. From the Euphrates, given permission to kill one-third of mankind after one-quarter's already died. A loathsome sore comes out on any man or woman who's taken the mark of the beast. The remainder of the sea and fresh water become blood. The sun scorches the earth. Global warming does happen. The world is covered with a supernatural darkness that torments mankind. There will be incredible thunderings and lightnings. A great earthquake occurs, unrivaling everything that's ever happened before. An earthquake such as islands and mountains are removed. Great cities are laid to ruin. Hundred pound hailstones fall from the sky. It really is true when you read through these tribulational period, these events, that unless the Lord had shortened the days, no flesh would be saved. And for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days." The abomination of desolation. It will spark a revival amongst the Jewish people. It will spark desolation, a judgment of the world. But it's equally true that these events will cause some to waver in their faith. He continues, verse 21. Then if any of you says, or if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, or he's there, do not believe it. For false Christ, false prophets will rise, they will show signs, wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. And once again, there are those who will say that Jesus' is reference here of the elect. Well, that it's evidence of the church being present during these things. That the church, the elect of God, will find themselves in great tribulation. However, these people overlook the context of what Jesus is saying to whom he's saying it. At this point, The disciples are Jews. He's referencing things from a Jewish context, which means that the precedent for the word elect is not found in yet future scripture to be written in the New Testament that uses the word for the church, but rather in past precedent established in the Old Testament, which means that the elect is not the church, but is a reference to whom? The people of God, the Jews. All throughout the book of Isaiah, the prophet refers to these people as the elect. Chapter 45, verse four, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I've called you by your name. Isaiah 65, verse nine, I'll bring forth the descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountain, my elect shall inherit it. This would have been the context, the elect being Israel and not the church. You can't make that leap. But in those days, verse 24, after that tribulation, no doubt Jesus is probably now describing Some of the ending of the bold judgments, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from heaven. Power of heavens will be shaken and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds. Once again, Jesus said the sign of the end and what? His coming. They will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds And from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Paul says that even today, in Romans 8, that creation is groaning for its maker. It would appear by the end, it's screaming for its maker. This kind of cosmic calamity. We don't just find reference by Jesus or the book of Revelation or Daniel. Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, Amos 8, Zephaniah 1, over and over and over again, we find similar descriptions of how everything will end. A crescendo will be reached where the earth is screaming for its maker. Thing is literally going to hell in a handbasket and Jesus will return. He returns. And what does he do? He crushes the armies of the Antichrist. He restores a broken planet. We're told that he binds Satan for a thousand years and establishes a kingdom of peace where he rules and reign from Jerusalem. Now, next week, we're gonna be looking at two parables that Jesus uses to kind of conclude this great discourse. But I wanna leave you with a very simple exhortation, something maybe you haven't thought about. What made the Antichrist's actions such an abomination? Oh, We've mentioned it. We addressed it, right? What made his deeds so abominable? Well, he entered the temple and declared himself to be God, right? We're on the same page there. Now, there's some fallout, there's some more things that happen. But I want you to consider. Because when we think of the abomination of desolation, by the way, the only act that Jesus ever called an abomination. We think of it in this future context of the Antichrist, the tribulation, the temple. But really when you whittle down his act, the act that Jesus calls an abomination that causes desolation, when you whittle it all down to its core, to its essence, what is it? What Jesus defines as an abomination is when a man establishes himself into a place that is only reserved for God and God alone? Do you realize that you were created in the image and the likeness of God? That God has made you and wired you, has created you and formed you to rule you, to exhort influence over you, to reign in your life, that on the throne of your heart, it was made, the throne was made For one man, and his name is Jesus, that you were created not to fulfill your purposes or your destiny or your will, but rather that of God, that your throne is reserved for God, that you are the temple of whom? The living God. And if Jesus would say that this act of the Antichrist and yet a future day where the Antichrist goes into the temple and sits on a seat that's only been reserved for God and God alone, if God says that is an abomination which will produce a desolation, it's the same with you. Because the truth, the sad truth, is that many of us are also committing an abominable deed where we, instead of surrendering our life to the king, instead exert ourselves, prop up ourself onto the throne. We don't want anyone else to tell us what we can and can't do. We wanna be the master of our own destiny. I want the scepter. I wanna call the shots. And in doing so, I am committing what Jesus refers to as an abomination, that it not be so But within this phrase, we're given the result of such a deed. If you exert yourself as your own God, if you are your own idol, if you sit on your own throne, if you're not willing to surrender all to Jesus, what will follow? The truth is only desolation. And I'm not just referring to for eternity. I'm referring to the here and now. I got together this past week with a young man I hadn't seen in years. And we had gone two totally different directions. It's been a decade. I went this direction and he went a different direction. And he was very successful in the world, in the scene. The world's attention, the world's accolades and his life was falling apart. So much so that in evaluating his present life, he reached this conclusion. I need to go back to a day when I was happy because I've made a mess of everything. And we got together and I told him, I said, I said, Are you, are you tired of being your own God? I mean, I mean, have you done a good job at ruling? I mean, I mean, take it just evaluation. How good are you being at God? More than likely, the conclusion is you stink at it. And that's the truth. Many of us can look back to a time, or maybe even presently evaluate a time, where we look around and say, You know, I'm being my own God, and I'm making a mess of it all. Because guess what follows the abomination? It's desolation, it's emptiness, it's hollowness hey, you want to be your own God, go for it, but you're going to make a mess of the world you live in. And that's the truth because there's only one thing that follows when man exalts himself as being God. That's judgment. God will let you do it. Have at it. Now, here's the great thing is that if we'll back up, we'll say, "I'm, (laughs) I'm done. I can't do that anymore. Jesus, here, The throne's yours. I'm going to exalt Christ. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to decrease so he can increase. Jesus, you take the reins. Then you know what Jesus can do? It's not desolation that follows. It's restoration. It's healing. It's salvation. And that's my exhortation this morning. We're looking at end times events, things to happen in the future, things many of us hope we're not here for. But understand, there is an application that's very relevant. The Antichrist will commit a deed that we look at and say, "Well, the worst thing ever happened. We're guilty of it. We absolutely are." Desolation or restoration—it's your choice.